0: our God, we will now be going into Psalm 119, verses 50. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yes, 57 through 64. These are the words of God. You are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. At night I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. I am a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your mercy. Teach me your statutes. These are the words of God. Let's ask his blessing upon them now. Father, thank you for your word, for time to meditate upon it. Please minister this word into our hearts by your Holy Spirit that we might learn and apply all you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, before we handle the next 10 psalms in the series of psalms that I've preached through over the years, we'll be handling uh, psalms 51 through 60 in the coming weeks. Uh, And I'd like to take the, the, kind of made it a tradition of beginning by taking a section of Psalm 119. I don't want to come to Psalm 119 and preach all 176 verses in in one message. Uh, and I've actually been really blessed over the years. Um, I don't know you as, as if you have this experience. If you're reading through the Psalms or using the Psalms to direct your prayer, you get to Psalm 119 and you kind of go, oh, "Okay," and it, you know it just it just goes on and on and it just repeats so much. It feels like it's just so repetitious and. And you just kind of gloss over it, try as you might. I have been blessed um, in taking chunks of it and then spending time really meditating over that chunk and seeing how this psalm is both organized and how it's organized by the stanzas. Um, There are these 22 stanzas in Psalm 119, and they, um, each one of them begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, The verse, so all eight verses, for instance, in this section, this eighth section begins with the letter um, het. Um, It's like our H, which is also our our eighth letter in the alphabet. So so David, and I believe it's David that wrote this psalm, uh, wrote this psalm. And, and he took the time to compose it thoughtfully, doing two things. He would take a stanza, and he would, he would write it in such a way that every, every line had to begin, every verse had to begin with that letter of the alphabet. So he had to think through what he was going to say. And then secondly, um, he, um, as, as he does so, he uses a word that refers to God's word or law or precepts or judgments in every verse, with just a couple of small exceptions, and so he's, he's meditating on the word, and he's, and he's finding delight in the word, and he's using the word to remind him to plead to God all kinds of things. And, and as, as you read, as, if you go back and just take a section like that, and you meditate on what he is saying about God's word, and then you remember that when he's referring to God's word, he's referring to the Pentateuch. That's all that's written. Oh, a few of his psalms, maybe, he may, he may now be using as well. But other than that, all he has is, is the Pentateuch, and he loves God's law. He loves the Old Testament. Those of you who are going through the Bible reading challenge, he loves the book of Leviticus. <laughs> Figure it out. So he, as he's meditating on God's word, he has all of these wonderful things to say. And What I want to do as we go through, this is a meditation on God's word. And because it's a meditation of God's word, I allowed myself throughout this sermon to, to med, we have so much more of God's word. And as, as you as you meditate on, on these eight verses, you find yourself, you find your mind going to all kinds of things that God says in his word. And I'm going to, I'm going to be quoting all kinds of Bible verses. You will not have to turn there. The, uh, the quote, or the, the, the uh, addresses or whatever are in the, in the outline. You can go back and look, look at them later, but just let, let your mind and your heart use them. And as I say, let the word of God dwell in you richly to see that God is your portion. Because that's what this stanza is a reflection on. That first verse is going to say, you are my portion, O Lord. What does that mean that God is our portion? What, is, what are we to reflect on with, with regard to um, with what, what that means for us? And so, let, your, let your, the word of God dwell in you richly, because we are to do so in the singing of psalms, and therefore in the preaching of psalms. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, and see that God is your portion, and then what the Spirit does with that word in you. Psalm, 50, uh, Psalm, Psalm 119, let's look at verse 57 and 58 together to begin with. You are my portion, O Lord. I I have said that I would keep your words. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. So both, both those verses use the word word explicitly. You are my portion. You are my portion. There's something wonderful that happens to the soul that realizes it has stumbled upon the greatest treasure, the greatest treasure in all of the universe. Jesus says in Matthew 13, again, the kingdom of heaven... Is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus says, "The kingdom of heaven for you is like finding the great. It's just stumbling upon the greatest treasure you could ever hope to find, finding it in this field, burying it quickly to hide it. And uh, it, 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 it wasn't that unusual." in ancient days to find treasure in a field because there weren't banks and there weren't safes. And and oftentimes someone had a lot of treasure. They, they buried it somewhere in a field, but then maybe they died unexpectedly or somehow it was lost in terms of that there was treasure there. This man has gone into this field and he just comes upon it and he goes, I'm going to buy this land right now, but it's going to be costly. And so he goes and he sells everything that he has because of the treasure that he has found. Jesus says, that's like finding the kingdom of heaven. That's like finding me. That's like making God your portion. Jesus becomes more valuable than anything else in life when you see him as your portion. 1 Peter 2 says, Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore to you who believe... He is precious, coming to understand that this portion is is coming to understand the great treasure and um, the precious gift that we have been given in Jesus Christ. And this cry is heard throughout Scripture in Psalm 16. It says, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot, Psalm 73. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Philippians 3, um, well, it goes on also in Psalm 142. Jeremiah 10 says the same thing. Lamentations 3 says the same thing. You are my portion. And it doesn't matter what is going on in, with my body, my heart, and my flesh fail. It doesn't matter my circumstances. You're my treasure. You're my precious gift. You're my portion. And the response is in this You are my portion, O Lord. And because of that, look, look what the response is there in 57. I have said I would keep your words. The response is to keep his word. The Christian life then becomes an ongoing enjoyment and deepening satisfaction in God as our portion through obedience to his word. Coming to understand that Jesus Christ is not a system of religion that you follow, but rather, uh, rather the means, the access, the way to the very God of the universe whom has reconciled you to him by the blood of Jesus Christ, okay, means that all of a sudden his word, which is his character, is is all that you want to do. It it becomes, the the more we understand that God is our portion and what that means, the more we desire to obey, the more it becomes a a greater and greater satisfaction to us to obey. Beforehand, we couldn't obey. You could not obey God until uh, until God's spirit puts both in you the desire and the ability to do so. And so Paul, reflecting on this, Philippians 3 says, but what things were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Jesus Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of what? The excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and counted all as rubbish that I may gain Christ. He goes on and says, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. See, he wants more satisfaction. He wants more joy. And how is he going to get it? He's going to press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You are my portion, O Lord. I've said that I would keep your words. The psalmist is describing the joy of obedience. The joy of obedience. The Christian life is not something that you have to gut out. Not with the work of God's spirit in you. Rather, even when we stumble and fall, the gift of of God leading us in repentance and reconciliation to him becomes a joy to be made right with him, be back in fellowship with him. And this joy of obedience comes when one experiences it connected to the love of God and the love for God. Obedience to God and the love of God. Obedience to God and love for God are given to us together. Jesus says, "If you love me, keep my commandments." And it can be a it can be a test. Do you really love Do you really love God? You can test it by whether you keep His commandments. But there's something deeper here that Jesus means. Loving God is keeping His commandments. Loving God is loving His commandments. Loving God is finding joy in following after Him. Again, in the very next verse, John uh, chapter John 15, Jesus says, "If you keep my commandments." You will abide in my love. How do I abide in, in God's love? By keeping his commandments. They're connected together. You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. If you want to know the Father, you become like the Father as, as you, you become like the Father as, or like Jesus' relationship to the Father in your relationship to Jesus. You keep his commandments, abiding in his love, love and you find yourself like Jesus abiding in the love that he has for his Father. You see, Jesus is the way to the Father. Imitation of Jesus is the way to the Father. Obedience and love go together. The psalm singer, realizing the treasure that is his, says that he seeks the favor of God with his whole heart. That's verse 58. I entreated your favor With my whole heart. That that word "favor" can also be translated "face," so it could mean I'm looking looking for you to be find favor in me. But but it might mean more the 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 sense of we are close, we are face to face. I I seek that that close, um, loving relationship that I can have with you. That I'm seeking your favor, and I'm doing so with my whole heart. Uh, Psalms 27:8 says. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. And that's the same word, favor. When, when, when you said, the psalmist, when the psalmist says to God, when you said, Lord, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face I will seek. I want your favor. I want to be close. I want to be in deep fellowship with you. So what does it mean to pray with our whole heart? He says, I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Having seen that God is his his portion, he wants to go after that. He wants to be like the man who goes and sells everything so that he can own it. And Calvin says, answers, what does it mean to pray with our whole heart? He says, it is to have constancy in our prayers, not only today, but tomorrow and the next. And though it seems he has stopped his ears, yet for all that, trusting in his word must go continually unto him. And pray unto him a hundred times as much as we did before, knowing it to be no superfluous labor, to seek him and to continue seeking him. I love that this is a quote from John Calvin. You know John Calvin, that dry theologian all about the the five points of Calvinists and just, you know, proposition, proposition. Read Calvin. He knows the love of God. He rests in the love of God, in the deep kindness that God had given to him. And Calvin, who had no easy life, would know what it would mean to pray to God and and go after him again and again and again and never stop, even when it seemed that God wasn't listening, even when it seemed that God's ears were stopped. Because he knew God was his portion, he would persist and never stop seeking the face of God. And that's what the psalmist is talking about. The request is for God to be merciful, for he owes us nothing. So he says, I entreated your favor with my whole heart. And what is, what's he asking for? Oh, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me according to your word. I, I, can't, I can't earn anything from you. I can't demand anything from you on the basis of who I am or what I've done. Be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. And what's glorious is to ask God to be merciful is to ask God to do what is his very character. It is not asking God to do something that is not about him. It's not asking God to have to 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 say, well, I'm going to have to pretend to be something that I'm not really. No, to ask God to be merciful is to ask God to do the very thing that is the character of God, full of compassion and long-suffering, merciful to those who call upon his name. And so his word declares over and again that his mercies are full and complete. Deuteronomy, um, uh, Deuteronomy 4 says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers, which he swore to them. In Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Slow to anger. And great in mercy. Do you know that about God, that he is slow to anger and great in mercy? He's slow to anger over you, and he's great in mercy. He says, The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are all over his works. Eyes of faith look around to the world around, and they see nothing but the mercy of God over and over. In fact, look, drop down to the very last verse. We'll get there in a moment. But 64 The earth, O Lord, is full of your mercy. And in Psalm 145, it says, all his tender mercies are over all his works. Did you earn that last breath you just took? That last beat of your heart? Breakfast this morning? The car that worked again? Did you you deserve any of that? How many mercies of the Lord have been granted to you even this day so far? The, The earth is full of the mercies of God. To know that he is your portion and to have him as your portion is nothing but the mercy of God. To know that he's your portion is only because he's merciful. Because eyes of flesh never see that. They never see that God is merciful. They see him as harsh. They see him as judgmental. They see him as full of law and no grace. They see him as um, somebody you're supposed to just, you know, follow with with no feeling or or just he's going to be somebody who ruins your life because you're not going to be able to do this. Now you got to do that. Eyes of faith, when God grants faith, sees that when God is your portion, it's wonderful, and that's the mercy of God. To have him as your portion and to know that he is your portion is nothing but the mercy of God. Psalmist goes on, because of this, listen to what he says. He says in 59, I thought about my ways. So he's been looking and seeing who God is. He's been overwhelmed by the mercy of God. Now he takes a moment and takes a look at himself. Takes a look at himself. He says... I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. Spurgeon writes, while studying the word, the psalmist was led to study his own life, and this caused a mighty revolution. Something was out of balance. I just realized how great God was, how merciful God was, how good his commandments are, how they're for my blessing. I took a look at my life, and I turned, and I made haste. I realized where I needed to go. This is the gift of repentance. This is the merciful gift of repentance that God grants. This is what happens to the man who knows the treasure of his portion and then studies the word. Because in our flesh, in our flesh, we each decide, each one of us decides whether we'll serve God. Am I going to serve God or not? In our flesh, we think we we get to make that decision. (laughs) We think that we're in charge. So we decide whether we're going to serve God, and if we decide we are, we also think that we can decide how we will serve him. I'll serve you on Sunday morning from 10 to 11.30 or so. I'll I'll serve you when I'm having my quiet time and I'm looking for some feel-good moments. I'll serve you when, um, when everything that I want to do is in accord with your word. But when you tell me to do something I don't want, when you tell me to trust you when I don't want, When you tell me not to worry when I want to, when you tell me not to lust, not to envy, not to covet when I want to, uh, we're going to have some talk here, God. You see, here's, see, God, this is how it's going to be. And we give God our own Ten Commandments, right? We we lay out for God, okay, we're going to enter into this covenant with you, God, and, and here's how it's going to go. And when we do that, we're acting just like Adam and Eve in the garden, saying, we will be God, listening to the serpent saying, We will be God. We will be our own gods. But the man who trusts, truly trusts in God, refuses to lean on his own understanding. He knows that his thinking is vain, it's foolish, it's broken outside of fearing God first. Proverbs 3 Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. The man who understands God as his portion re- realizes that he's got to not lean on his own understanding. Considering our ways in the light of God's word causes us not just to return to him, but to gladly return to him and his ways if we understood that he is our portion. So Lamentations 3.40, let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Ezekiel 18, because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. And then, of course, the story of the prodigal. The prodigal son, who knows he has a portion with the father, goes and demands it from the father as though it can be given to him without the father takes it and squanders it in a life of sin and wickedness. One day, he finds he has lost it all, all the money is gone, all the girls are gone, everything's gone, and he's working, feeding pigs in a trough. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will rise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, mercy, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Why would we gladly return to God our Father in repentance. We would gladly turn to God our Father in repentance because when He sees us turn, He runs to us. He runs to us. Brothers and sisters, there's t- it's too often that we, we don't have enough remorse over our sin. We don't realize what, how much it has ruined us and others around us, and we try to make light of it. But brothers and sisters, also, too often, we think that God will not accept us, or we think that he will hold his nose, wash us again. But you know what he does when you turn to him? He runs to you. Full of compassion, he runs to you, throws his arms around you, and kisses you. He loves to grant repentance. He loves to give it. So consider your ways. It's worth doing. You don't consider your ways to become introspective in a, in a woe is me and I'm awful and I'm a worm kind of mentality and stay there. You, 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 you spend time considering your ways. You spend time considering why you do the things that you do, but you, you do so carefully according to God's word, believing who he is. Consider your ways and think on them accurately. Make no excuses for your sin. Think on them advisedly. Let the word instruct you as to what these things are. Be serious about it. Even be curious about it. Ask yourself these kinds of questions. Why am I doing this? Why do I do that? Why are you thinking those thoughts, feeding those lusts? Why do you keep doing that? Where are you doubting God and why? Why do you doubt God? Why do you think he doesn't know or care? Who do you think this God is? Ask these questions with your Bible open. Ask these questions with your Bible open. But then, if God is kind and he reminds you of the portion that he is for you, like the prodigal son, when he came to his senses, rushed back to his father. And the psalm singer, singer exclaims here in verse 60, I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. He says, I did not delay or I did not linger. Lot was guilty of delaying his obedience. It says in, in Genesis 19, um, in the morning after, after the angels have come, after they've instructed him to grab his family and go, in the morning it says, but Lot lingered. And the angels had to come and grab him, and get him moving. God's word, God's spirit grabs you to get you moving. And that's the kindness of God too. Got Lot out of the city in time. Why do you? So, so don't linger. Make haste. Um, when I when we were raising our children, we taught them this phrase: that delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And we also told them that what was it like? They were not to ask questions when they were when they were told to do something. You don't ask why unless you're already obeying. We had the phrase that we say: you can, you, you when you're told to jump, you can ask how high on the way up. Great little, great little sayings to have as you raise your children. But how often are we guilty of the same sinful lingering or questioning God? (laughs) Spurgeon, we are too often in haste to sin. Oh, that we may be in a great hurry to obey. Delay in sin is increase of sin. To be slow to keep the commands is really to break them. Oh, I'm going to be angry just for a little bit longer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worry just a little bit longer. I'm going to just put up a fuss for just a little bit longer. I'm just going to I'm just gonna lust for just a little bit longer. I'm, I'm planning to turn. I'm planning to quit this. I'm, but, but I just need to for just a little bit longer. Making haste, or not making haste, lingering, to be slow to keep the commands, Spurgeon writes, is really to break them. There is much evil in a lagging pace when God's command is to be followed. So if you spend any time kind of meditating on that for a little bit, I promise you, it's going to do this to you. But then, but then, the natural response to the perceived value of having God as your portion is repentance from anything that would hinder your entrance and joy in it. Again, the, the turn the turn to God is not a turn to God with remorse anymore. It's a turn to God with great joy, with great joy with what God is promising. It, and it's, it's a very gift from him. See, repentance often sounds like a sad, joyless activity, but that's not what it is at all. 2 Corinthians 7, "...for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation." Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So if it's godly repentance, godly sorrow, godly sorrow turns you to, back to Christ, washes you in Christ, restores the joy of your salvation, and sets you back on the path. Repentance is not a sad thing. It's it's a glorious gift. In fact, we're told that repentance is just like faith. Faith is the gift of God. Nobody believes Nobody believes in Jesus. Nobody trusts in the faithfulness of God in their life unless God grants it. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. But when Peter preached to the Gentiles in Acts 10 and 11, when, when he preaches to Cornelius' group, and, all the, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them, and all these Gentiles are saved, and Peter goes back to report it to the Jews, they, they reply to him and they say, they, basically, they're amazed amazed, and became silent in their confusion, in their questions, and they glorified God, it says, Acts eleven eighteen, 18, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. It's a gift. When, when you repent of your sins, give glory to God. It's a gift that he, that he does so, and, and then use it, use the gift that he gives to you. It's like this. Imagine a man walking in the dark, holding on to his sin in his hands. But he's in the dark because he's walking in darkness. And what he's got in his hands are fistfuls of sharp gravel. But he's walking on something, too. And it's sharp as well. But he likes his gravel. All of a sudden, there's light. God grants light. And he finds that he's walking on a path of diamonds. That's what repentance is like. What is the man naturally, what is he going to do now? These, these sins that he held in his hands, these, these precious pieces of gravel that he held in his hand. what does he do? He drops them and reaches for the diamonds that are his. That's what repentance is. Oh my goodness, what am I doing? Look at what I have. That's what it's like to turn back. That's what it's like to turn to God in faith. Letting go of sin and turning back to God is a sweet and joyful experience. And so, the psalmist says, I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. He goes on, 61, 62, the cords of the wicked have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight, I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. Now, David would have many specific instances in mind, and many of his psalms, we are told in the title, the instances or the specifics. But I think he's writing this psalm, this long psalm, much more generally and figuratively. Wicked men, so he's, he's saying that when these wicked men gathered together, they will dare to do in company what they would not have dared to do alone. This is, what, this is what happens when wicked men are, are all gathered together. They, they don't have the courage to do what they want to do or what they want to do to the righteous or what they want to do to, to others, but if they can band together, this is why gangs are formed, this is, why, this is why wicked men come together, because then there's more power, strength, and courage to rebel, to rebel against God. And what they do, will do together is oppress the righteous wherever they can, This is what he's talking about when he says, the the cords of the wicked have bound me. Now, now this happened again, it could be wicked men, but it could be the wickedness that comes through the serpent as well. The serpent is crafty. And so the the things that that the serpent binds us up with are bribes and bullying. He bribes you. You know, if you take and eat of that fruit, you'll become like God. You know, your life's going to be a lot better if you do these things. Or he bullies you. He bullies you by, you take a stand for righteousness and everything goes wrong. You lose the promotion, you lose the job, you, you lose the friends because you stood for what was right. And the serpent does this. He bribes and he bullies. He's crafty. He offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would simply bow down to him. But the psalm singer, like Jesus, refused to forget God's law. He says, the cords of the wicked have bound me, but I've not forgotten your law. And I love how he he uses the word this time, law. Law (laughs) includes all the promises of God and the paths that we are to walk on in God. The Psalms begin with Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight... His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And if you recall, those three temptations that were given to Jesus, including the one I mentioned, uh, uh, Satan offering him the kingdoms of the world, how did, how did Jesus take a stand against the devil day over and over again? Well, he must have been doing his devotions that, that morning in, in Deuteronomy because he quotes it over and over and over using the word of God to stand against the temptations. He's meditating. Look, if the Son of God meditates in the, in the law... If the Son of God meditates on his word, how much more should we? How much more do we need God's word to stand against the wiles and the temptations of the devil? Right? And so, like David, we ought to be people who are meditating constantly on the word of God. He would not... So, um, Jesus refused to forget God's law. He would not do wrong to prevent suffering, nor would he sin to avenge sin. And this is, this is what the, uh, the righteous man will not do as well. He, he will not do wrong. I'm, I'm suffering, and all I need to do is join in with the sin, acknowledge that the, these unlawful ways are actually lawful, join in with the bad guys, and, and then the suffering will go away. He refuses to do that, even if he's going to suffer. And he, he will also not avenge sin when he is hurt, when, when hurt is brought upon him. Romans twelve seventeen through 19. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So even in the throes of the darkest midnight... He rises instead and giving thanks to God for he knows God will avenge. Again, Romans 12 continues. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Kids, when your brother hits you in anger, you have one of two options. You can hit him back in anger, which is what your flesh will tell you to do. Or you can trust God's vengeance. You can trust God will bring the vengeance. And you can obey God and not return evil for evil. When someone speaks to you and derides your name or makes fun of you or, 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 or speaks, um, speaks of you openly and publicly about you, you, you want to deride him back or her back. And God says, let me take care of it. I can do a better job than you. In fact, if you take care of it, you're going to be in sin. Yes, I know that he did it first. Yes, I know that she did it first, said it first. But listen to me. If, if, you, if you listen to the devil, if you listen to the devil, you're going to turn and hit back. You're going to turn, turn and deride back. Um, Jesus says, bless your enemies and pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. Our, our Our first and natural response in the spirit is to return good for evil and, and amazing and the only way you do that is if you know God is your portion. If you know it just doesn't they can't get past me romans eight if if, if he's given you Jesus, what good thing is he going to withhold? It has to go it has to go to a final um, righteousness and vindication. He's promised that we will be vindicated just as Christ is fully vindicated. Psalm 98, when we sing Psalm 98, you get to that, that, the last verses, and the last verses they're saying, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for He's coming to judge the earth. And, and when you sing that, you think, wait a second, do I want God to come and judge the earth? Like, I'm here on the earth, but, but the idea there is that God's justice is going to vindicate his people. It says, with righteousness he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. He's going to take care of it all. There isn't, there's not a slander, there's not a persecution, there's not anything that's ever happened to you that God will not make right. He has, he's kept a ledger and he loves his children and you are his portion and there's nothing that he will not make Right? And so we long for, we want God's judgment to come. We want his justice to to flow like clean rain upon the earth. And so he says, at midnight, I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgment. Even in the darkest of times, even in the darkest of times, he rises with thanksgiving because he trusts God. The Christian who knows God is his portion knows that the lines have fallen to him in pleasant places. Psalm 16 is beautiful. O oh Lord, you are the portion, there it is again, of my inheritance and in my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. There it is. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. I'm not even afraid to die. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And because of that, he learns to count it all joy as he goes through various trials, as James instructs us to. This is because we know God is our portion. Finally, 63 and 64. I am a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your mercy. Teach me your statutes. I am a companion of all who fear you. You know it's true that we experience God as our portion by faith individually, and your individual personal devotions matter matter a great deal to the Lord. You are to pour your heart out upon Him often, regularly throughout your day. He loves that, and He calls you to do so. Morning and evening, and at noon, shall I pray? The psalmist writes, and and He knows each one of us by name, personally and fully. Your individual walk with Christ is of extreme importance, but your individual personal walk with Christ is not disconnected from the companions, your brothers and sisters in Christ that you are to enjoy along with your enjoyment of God. We also experience God as the portion of people who fear him and of people who fear him with us. Isn't it a glorious thing to sing the Psalms hear and hear others singing with you? Doesn't it encourage you? Maybe some encourages you to, oh, that's how the tune goes and I can actually sing it. <laughs> M- maybe it encourages, it encourages you to, to go ahead and sing a little louder. Nobody will really hear because uh, I'm surrounded by those who are singing so much louder. I- isn't it good to, to sing and say the amens together saying all to, and hear everybody with you saying, yes, this is us. We agree, we together are companions in this walk with Christ and what God is, is doing. This is this is a great deal, a great deal for us. A man is known, a man is known by the company that he keeps. Right? A man is known by the company that he keeps. And when God is your portion, it changes who you want to gather with. Acts 2, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I, 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 the, the little bit I understood about God in high school, the little bit that I understood, I hated and I, I didn't want to have anything to do with God. And I had a companion of fools and we had a great time being a companion of fools, doing a lot of evil things. And God, in his kindness, opened my eyes in in the, uh, um, in the middle of my senior year in high school, and everything changed. Everything changed. I was clean. I was forgiven. I wanted fellowship with Christians. And the only problem was that it became harder and harder to keep my friends, to be with them anymore. I didn't really want to be with them doing what they were doing, and they didn't really want me around saying the things that I was saying. And we kind of parted ways. Now, it's been 45 years almost since I graduated from high school, and there's been a couple of reunions that I've gone back to, and they are really difficult because some, a number of group of my friends, these friends, are, they're doing the exact same thing that we were doing 45 years ago. They're just, they're just ruining their lives. And it's like you get together, and there just isn't that much to talk about. There's no fellowship. There's no friendship left. It's, it's very difficult, but one of the things that definitely happened is that then God placed me with another group of friends, dear, dear brothers and sisters, to walk with. Do not miss out on what God has for you as you are able to be with brothers and sisters in Christ to stir you up to love and to good works. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That's today, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more. As you see the day approaching, how much do we need one another? What are you doing to encourage the saints, brothers and sisters? What are you doing to to make sure your home is a place of hospitality? What are you doing to make sure that your time is given to to send a note of encouragement or a word of encouragement to others? What are you doing to give yourself away for the sake of others? Don't you believe that, that God is their portion and you are the means of them receiving part of that portion? God is their portion and you are part of the means by which they are going to receive that portion and enjoy that portion. You have a job to do, and it's to bless the brothers and sisters around you, to gather together with them, to to do the kinds of things that we see Christians doing uh, in their day all throughout the New Testament here, encouraging one another. And we're told to see the mercies of God over all creation and therefore all over us. Tyler in corporate prayer reminded us of this passage in Matthew 6 where he says, look, look at all of creation. I take care of birds. I take care of plants. I, I, I make sure they're well fed. They're cared for. They get all they want. Don't you think I'm going to take care of every one of your needs? So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Trust me, over and over again. Trust me, we are said. And his response in seeing all of this, his response, teach me your statutes. I got to know, I got to to understand this stuff, God. I got to get, this has to be something I'm totally saturated in because tomorrow is going to be tough. And this week is going to be really hard. And this year may be the hardest year of my life so far. And, and what's coming in the future might be some of the most difficult times that I will have ever, ever experienced. Teach me your statutes. I need to know that you're my portion and all that that means. That's his, that's his cry. The man, woman, or child who knows he is Christ and knows that Christ is his <laughs> desires to delight in God and to be a delight to Him. It's it's not just maybe you del- maybe this morning right now you don't delight in God, but if you're a Christian, you desire to delight in God, right? And that's enough. That's where it starts. It's not whether or not you delight in God. If you don't delight in God, well, you have business to do with God. Fine and dandy. Welcome to the club of imperfect Christians but I have this question for you. Do you desire to delight in God? Do you you read or having meditated on this, do you you say to yourself, oh, wouldn't that be wonderful if that was my heart? If that was my words, if those were my desires, if I I actually, I could lose everything so that I could gain Christ. I, I desire that. I desire to have that kind of delight in this God so that As Paul writes, you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Obedience to God brings more knowledge of God. Obedience to God brings more knowledge and understanding and wisdom of God in his ways. Don't wait for the knowledge and the wisdom to obey. Obey to receive the knowledge and the wisdom. Don't wait for the desire to obey. Obey and you'll find the desires coming. You'll find the desires coming. A Puritan wrote these words. God is all sufficient. Get him for your portion and you have all. Then you have infinite wisdom to direct you, infinite knowledge to teach you, infinite mercy to pity and save you, infinite love to care and comfort you, and infinite power to protect and keep you. If God be yours, all his attributes are yours. All his creatures, all his works of providence shall do you good as you have need of them. He is an eternal, full, satisfactory portion. He is an ever-living, ever-loving, ever-present friend. And without him, you are a cursed creature in every condition, and all things will work against you. Is Jesus Christ your portion? Do you know that to be true? Do you know that to be true? If so, listen to the psalmist, consider your ways, and turn to his testimonies. Father, do your work of grace now that each one here would know that you are their portion. This is the gospel, to be taken out of sin and misery and to find our hearts' desire to follow Christ, forgiven and made new, with eternity now set in our hearts. Grant each one the knowledge of your love and the power that is ours in Jesus to live according to your ways with glad hearts, with delight in the portion that is ours, even Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, we don't sing this portion of Psalm 119, but we do sing the final stanza. Let's turn and respond. Sing number 229.